Turn to Second Peter. I'm going to finish chapter one today. That's the hope. Second Peter, chapter one. In this chapter, Peter has been explaining some of the specific qualities that believers are supposed to be living out all the time. Right? If you look back five, six, seven, some of those verses, he's talking about virtue and self-control and endurance and brotherly affection and love, and these are the qualities that he's been talking about. But if you, if we notice, and I pointed this out last week, all along in his first letter, he's doing the same sort of thing. He's explaining how these qualities play out in, in marriage, in the workplace, in the church, and even in government. So Peter's like highest aim, what he really wants to do, what he communicated uh, last week in some of those verses, he said, look, my life is coming to an end at some point. God's made it clear to me. Here's what I want to do. Now, it wasn't his dying words, but it was kind of some of those last ideas that he wants to, to convey. And it was this, remember, remember, remember these things. Remember the, the transformation of the gospel. This is what your life ought to look like when it's been changed by Jesus, transformed by Jesus. So my encouragement to you at the end of last week's sermon was, was simple, swim against the current, against the drift that was mentioned in Hebrews chapter 2 in the Sunday school class this morning, against the drift, swim against it, because if you don't, you're moving away from God, just because of our own sinful nature, because of the world and the enemy. Swim hard, that's a metaphor just for being diligent to confirm your calling and election, that's what Peter has said. And we confirm that calling and election as we practice the qualities that Peter mentions in those first few verses of chapter one. Just as a way of reminder, we need to say, we need to hear this day in and day out. Pursuing these things doesn't earn your salvation. It proves it though. It, it reveals that it's true of you. And so we do pursue them, not to earn God's favor, but because we already have it. And in verse 16, Peter begins to explain what his message and the message of the rest of the apostles, what it is not and where it did not come from. And so let's read Second Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 21, the end of the chapter, and then just ask God to bless our time in the Word together. I'll reading, we'll be reading from the ESV this morning. For we do not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have something more sure, the prophetic word, to which you would do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Would you pray with me? Lord, just as, as we read, none of what I want to share this morning comes from my own interpretation, but rather it comes from an understanding of your word based on other biblical ideas, on other biblical scriptures, 
of principles that are wrought throughout the Bible that are that just kind of connect from old to new all the way to the world today and they find their home their foundation and landing point in scripture and so lord we we just want to be faithful students we want to study and show ourselves approved and this is a way that we can do this and so we pray lord that as we as we study and then as we go out today as we think of a lamp shining in the darkness that's what we want to give our attention to because it'd be real easy to give our attention or at least the majority bulk of it to the ridiculousness that is our world today. The darkness that seems to be consuming more and more of the light. And yet we know, Lord, that there is a lamp shining in the darkness. And it's your word. It's Jesus Christ. It's your people who believe and live for him. And so I pray, Lord, that we would be those people more as we leave today. In your name we pray. Amen. So some of the gospel writers... Besides Peter, um, they say the same kind of thing that Peter says here. He says, look, we're not passing along folklore. We're not passing along legends, half-truths, myths, none of that stuff. They said what we're saying and writing about is what we witnessed firsthand. So, kids, it, it may have been a minute, but Jason talked with you and Awana about the importance of eyewitnesses, right? If you're at Awana and you remember... Talking about eyewitnesses, just raise your hand real quick. Okay? Some of you all remember that. Why is it important? Why is an eyewitness important? Well, I've told you before, Nikki and I, I don't know that we fell in love, but we, we kind of got closer watching Matlock. You guys know what's the show I'm talking about? Matlock? We watched that during our lunch break in college and it kind of, you know, solidified our relationship. So, uh, that says a lot about us, I'm sure. But yeah, murder shows. <laughs> um, but in in that show and in any other you know mystery that where murders are involved, eyewitnesses are very important. In fact, there are even other shows based on people trying to tamper with witnesses, witness tampering. It's a, it's a thing even still. What weight does an eyewitness carry? Well, in the courtroom, it carries a lot of weight, and we learned that from Matlock. It carries a lot of weight. In fact, an eyewitness account can be the difference between the death penalty or life in jail or being set free. An eyewitness account is really important. Now, that's not to say that you can just claim to be an eyewitness and say whatever you want, right? Like, you can't make some crazy statement and say you were there and saw it. That eyewitness account still has to be verified by facts already in evidence, Maybe other eyewitness accounts. Um, your own integrity is called into question maybe sometimes. But an, an eyewitness account has an incredible amount of weight. It still does in our legal system even today. So we're not talking about just a few guys' written testimony as fact without any kind of checks and balances. Eyewitness testimony is checked for truthfulness by a variety of contributing factors, as I mentioned. The apostles and writers of the New Testament, their writings have been checked for centuries. Think about this. The Bible's been around for a long time, generally unchanged, even in our English language. And so it's been checked and checked and compared and proved over and found truthful. And wouldn't you know, we didn't even need Facebook fact checkers to do it. Thankfully. 
we've survived for thousands of years without them. But we do need to remember, not only is their eyewitness account verified by others and by other writings and different outside accounts and different things like that, but these guys died for this eyewitness account. For what they were, were sharing and writing and what God through the Spirit has given us in His Word, they died for this. And many throughout the years too. So if, if they made just like this pact between the ten of them or so, and they were like, hey, you know, Jesus died, that's no good, but we've started this process, we need to, you know, really buckle down and we can't give in. We have to continue this lie. You know, maybe after one or two of them were martyred for that, the others are going to say, it's not worth it. But they didn't do that. They went to the crosses and to the guillotines and, and to the spears and the swords and they died in a variety of ways for the truth that Peter is saying is real. He's, he's saying it's not a myth. It's not a story. It's not a fable. It's true. They weren't cleverly designed legends or fables or untrue stories. It was truth that he's talking about here. And we need to understand it. The coming of Jesus as God in the flesh, the absolute power of Jesus Christ to save, not just to work miracles, those verified who he was as God, but it wasn't just those things, but to save people from their sin, to forgive them of sin. These weren't embellished bedtime stories that they told their kids and grandkids. These were real events that changed these guys' lives forever. They were willing to endure persecution, some of them even torture and death, to ensure that you and I and our kids, and and if God tarries our grandkids and great-grandkids, would have the text of God's word to rule and reign in our lives. Peter wants his readers, us, you and me, in 2022, to know that this message of the gospel is truth. He says that they were eyewitnesses of his majesty. That's, that's a, a fun word. It's an interesting word. It means superbness. It means glory, power. But I, again, I don't think Jesus, uh, Peter is talking about Jesus' miracles when he's talking about that they were eyewitnesses to his majesty. Uh, look at the next couple of verses, verse 17 and 18. He get, we get to Peter's explanation. He says, for when he received honor and glory from God the Father... The voice was born to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven for we were with him on that holy mountain. So it's clear that Peter, he's not referring to the miracles. He's referring to the transfiguration of Jesus. The Mount of Transfiguration is what it's called. He and James and John were brought by Jesus to witness that incredible event. The ESV study Bible about this says Peter uses this event, the transfiguration, as evidence to the fact that his preaching is not of human origin, but based on direct revelation from God, right? Because Peter says we were with Jesus on that holy mountain. Now that event is captured in several places. I listed them in your notes if you want to read through them later in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But they all talk about how Jesus was transfigured. The the actual Greek word for that is metamorphosis, like changed to something almost different in a sense. It says that his face shone like the sun. And all three of the gospel writers that record this say that his, his clothes became 
like white as light. Like there was no other word to describe it, but just pure light is what came off of him. And that wasn't all. It wasn't just that this happened to Jesus bodily in his person. There were other people that showed up there with him. You probably remember the story. Old Testament guys, Moses and Elijah. So they're up there. James, Peter, and John are there. All of a sudden, this happens to, to, to Jesus. And Elijah and Moses are standing there talking to Jesus. Well, we've talked about who Peter is, right? A little bit, you know, moves, his mouth moves in front of his brain a little bit. So he goes, he says, well, Lord, it's good that we're here. I'm just going to go ahead and set up three tents, you know, so that we can stick around and, and you can be here for a while with, with Moses and Elijah. We're just going to hang out here. Luke says in his account that Peter didn't know what he was talking about. He, he wasn't fully aware of what was happening. I think that's true. He didn't understand. And so he sort of spoke a little bit out of ignorance. I don't think it was wrong motive, just a little bit of ignorance. But what was wrong was that, that Peter was putting Moses and Elijah on the same level as Jesus. Now, he, he's just learning these things still. But the writer of Hebrews says that Jesus was given more glory than Moses. He's superior. They're not on the same level. And so there's really no response to Peter when he says that. Things just keep happening. But Jesus wasn't the same as Moses and Elijah. He wasn't just another prophet like Elijah. And he wasn't just another lawgiver like Moses. He was superior than these two. More glory. We know this because of what happens right after this. There's a voice that's heard. Where does it come from? Uh, Peter says it was born of heaven. The gospel writers talk about how it was of God the Father. And it says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Okay, there's a lot going on in the transfiguration. And so I just want to point out a couple of things. Uh, I mentioned Moses. He represented the law. The giving of the Ten Commandments, Elijah at the Transfiguration, he represented the prophets, and then you've got Jesus. But Jesus wasn't just another person in God's redemptive plan like Moses and Elijah was. He was the fulfillment of the plan. He came to reconcile these things, and that was the point of sh- them showing up and talking with him. He was the culmination of God's plan. Peter quotes God himself, he says, this is my son whom I am well pleased. So God the Father is saying this about his son, Jesus. So stay stay with me here. There are seven players on the Mount of Transfiguration. You've got God. You've got his son, Jesus. You've got Peter, James, John, and then Elijah and Moses. Okay. So there's a lot happening. And Peter uses the term majestic glory. And probably in most of your English translations, those are capitalized because as best we can understand, these represent God the Father. The majestic glory to describe God the Father. And I think the connection here that makes sense is that Peter was with Moses on the mountain, right? A man who had seen the back of the glory of God from the cleft of the rock in Exodus. And Moses had been physically changed as a result. Do you guys remember that story? Uh, you can look it up, jot it down, Exodus chapter 33 and 34. 
the majesty of God is the glory of God is kind of partially revealed to Moses. God hides him. He tucks him away in the cleft of the rock, protects him because no, we even sang that line. I forget which song this morning that no human eye can see the glory of God. And so he tucks him aside in, in the cleft of a rock and the backside of God's glory passes by. And just that amount changes Moses' physical countenance for a while. And so he's, his face is shining bright. So when he goes down the mountain, he's talking, he starts to talk to the people. What do they do? They say, Moses, you got to do something about your face. Basically, uh, I think it was a conviction issue for them. They saw the glory of God reflected in Moses and they're, I mean, they had just, you know, dealt, they were dealing with the whole, uh, bronze calf thing, golden calf. And so they're like, we can't, we can't deal with you like this. So he puts a veil. Moses wears a veil to cover that because he's just shining so bright. He's reflecting the glory of God. At the transfiguration, God declared and testified to the glory and majesty of Jesus. And Peter says he was an eyewitness to it. Now, here's the really interesting thing. And this was something that I read that was really neat, kind of got pointed out to me. When Moses saw the glory of God, just a a part of it, he reflected that glory for, for a while in his physical face. It came, it was reflecting God to the people. Came down and he had to wear a veil. When Peter saw Jesus transfigured, the glory shining from Jesus, it wasn't being reflected. It was coming from within. There's a big difference in that. Because Moses was just a sinful guy, and that's played out if you read through the Old Testament. But Jesus wasn't. And so he wasn't reflecting the glory of God. He was displaying the glory of God because he is God. Jesus' closest friends saw in that moment glory and majesty originating from within the person of Jesus. And so here's that that clue, that um, that verification, the transfiguration. They finally saw him for who he really was, the glorified and majestic Son of God. And they and what they were given um, was the opportunity to see on that mountain was just kind of a partial glimpse of what Jesus would be like when he comes again. Look at verse 19. Here, Peter compares that hope of Christ coming again in all of his glory and majesty to a lamp shining in the, in the night or in a dark place. He says, and we have seen or we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you would do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. Until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. See, when Peter and James and John heard and saw on that mountain, what they heard and saw confirmed what the prophets had been saying all along. What, what Elijah and the rest of the prophets had been saying was now visually confer- and audibly confirmed to these eyewitnesses. Peter equates it to a lamp shining in the darkness, in a dark place. I think the dark place we could equate to the world in general, but also to our hearts. Without the light of Christ, our hearts are dark places. I think the words that Peter uses helps us to see that he has in mind not only Jesus' first coming in the incarnation in Bethlehem, but I think his second coming too, because he uses a couple of end times phrases, if you will. He says, until the day dawns, referencing the day of the Lord, 
And he says, until the morning star rises in your heart. These are both kind of second coming references. John says in his gospel that Jesus is the light that shines in the darkness. And what about that light? He's the light that shines in the darkness and the darkness has what? Has what? Has not overcome it. Does not understand it. It will not succeed. The light of Christ, who is Christ, has dispelled the darkness. It always does. And this is why Peter says, pay attention to this like it's a lamp shining a light in the darkness. You guys, we've had power outages. We know it can get real dark out here in the country. So when you've got a little light, maybe it's just a a candle, maybe it's a flashlight, you kind of huddle around it because there's safety where you can see. And if it's cold out and you're in a fire, there's warmth by that fire, that light and warmth. So, so Peter says, pay attention to this like it's a light shining in the darkness. This is important. Pay attention. Peter and the apostles eyewitness accounts, the words and the writings of the prophets, the inspiration of scripture. These things are light in the darkness, Peter says. These are the clearest things that we know of Christ. We get glimpses of them in the Old Testament, right? We call them types or shadows um, or or types of Christ. Um, but they all do what? They all point forward to Jesus. All of those prophets, all of them were like arrows pointing to Jesus. Christ had entered the scene now, and he spent his teaching time not only preparing his disciples for his death and resurrection but also for his coming again one day. And so what Peter, James, and John witnessed on the Mount of Transfiguration was just a foretaste of what Jesus will be like when he comes again in glory. And Peter says, guys, first thing you need to do is pay attention. Know the word. Hear what God says. The hope of Christ's second coming is the light that keeps us on the on the darkened or the light path until the day dawns and the morning star rises in our hearts. That's the light that keeps us going even when around us is dark. Look at verse 20 and 21. These verses add, they say, knowing that first of all, no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So to understand these last couple of verses, we need to keep them in context. That's a good study rule in general. But if we look at the next verse at the beginning of chapter two, we get a little bit further understanding what Peter's got in mind. I think it's, it's false teaching here. He starts talking about false teachers in chapter two. And then in chapter three, he says that there are people who twist the writings of Paul and other scriptures They twist the word of God to their own destruction, he says, in chapter 3, verse 16. So I think chapter 1, verse 20, is Peter warning us as individuals not to interpret Scripture according to our own personal whims. And and you you know that this would happen. Because if we if we had no background for biblical of biblical history or literacy, and we were just to pick up the Bible and read it, we would interpret it based on 2022 American culture. And so if we apply that, if we continue to apply that to Scripture, we're going to have a really messed up 
lopsided and flawed view of what interpretation of Scripture we should look at and study and, and, and hold to, what we should believe. So Peter is, is saying, don't be like these false teachers who twist the Scriptures for whatever they want. We can't make Scripture say and mean whatever we want. We just can't. And brothers and sisters, there's plenty of people who would like to do that. In fact, there's sometimes that we want to do that, right? We read a text and it's like, you mean I have to go to them and I have to repent? Well, you know what? Maybe it doesn't really mean that. You know what? Um, I, I have to submit to my husband. Maybe it, maybe it doesn't really mean, maybe we could explain it a different way. We're tempted to do these things even today. And, and Peter is, is saying that's happening now. He's getting ready to warn big time and talk about all the problems that comes from doing this. He's saying, don't do this. There is a true meaning that comes from God through the writer. And that's the standard of interpretation that we need to hold to. And here's where we have to be really careful as Christians. Because if we say we love God... And if we say we believe his word, then we can't believe and live as if the word means whatever we want. We might think we'd like the church better, being a Christian better, if we could just rearrange some of those pesky scriptures. That's not how Peter says it works. It can't mean whatever we want it to mean because then it's not God's word anymore. It's our word. Now notice something. We'll look at this a little bit more as we get further into the second letter here, but... It doesn't seem like Peter says the false teachers denied the inspiration of the prophets in their writings. He doesn't say that they denied those things or said that they were wrong. What does he do? He says that they twisted them. He twisted the, they twisted the prophetic writings to suit themselves. And we see it today. We see people, they don't deny the scripture. They don't say it's wrong, but they reinterpret it to mean something new, something different, something oftentimes very dangerous. In 1903, Bible commentator William Kelly said this, no individual is entitled to interpret prophecy or scripture generally according to his own personal whim. I think that's what Peter is getting at here. John Piper says it another way. The principle that should guide our attention to Scripture is that its meaning is objective, not subjective. The meaning of Scripture does not change with every new reader or every new reading. It can't be twisted to mean whatever we like. It is what it is, unchanging and unending. The first principle, therefore, in giving heed to Scripture is that there's a true meaning and there are false meanings. And we must submit our minds to trace out what is really there rather than presuming that whatever pops into our minds at our first reading is the true meaning. He's cautioning us against the same thing that Peter is cautioning us against. We can't read into Scripture whatever we want. Verse 21 says that the word of Scripture are designed by God to carry out his ideas to mankind. And so this is why we can't just fill the words of Scripture with our own ideas. No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, Peter says, but by men who spoke from God 
as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So Peter's driving a point home here. He's saying, remember, he's saying, this isn't, these are fables. So then in verse 16, this isn't just legend that has no root in truth. These are the words of God written through men who were carried along by the Holy Spirit. He wasn't deceived by silly stories, and he's not passing those kinds of stories on. He's passing along truth. Men like him spoke from God, not according to their own will, he says there, but as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. I like that word. I think that's the right word for here. Some of your other translations may use a different word. I like the word, the phrase carried along. Could mean moved, as they were moved by the Holy Spirit, driven by the Holy Spirit would be a good one as well. Carried along has a good a connotation to it. It has the idea of, of, of on a, being on a boat, doesn't it? Of maybe a sailboat. If you're on a sailboat, how do you get around? What powers a sailboat? The wind, right? So you're, you're floating in a boat on the water, but without the wind in a sailboat, you're not going anywhere. I mean, you could get a paddle, I suppose. You could certainly get an engine. But if you're in a sailboat, it's, it's the, the wind. So here's the question. How many of you guys have ever been sailing in a sailboat? Anybody? We can, okay. So we can imagine though, if we're on a sailboat, do we control the wind? Do we say, okay, wind, take me east? Have you ever done that? I mean, you could, you could try, but it's not going to work, right? We don't tell the wind what to do. We don't tell it where to blow. And we certainly don't create the wind. The phrase carried along makes clear what Peter's getting at here. These guys weren't the originators of the word. They didn't come up with this. They didn't tell God what they wanted him to tell them to say. It was nothing like that. They were just carried along and they simply recorded it, wrote it down as the Spirit led them to. We have to read and understand God's word the same way even today. Being led by the Spirit. If we aren't being led by the Spirit... When we sit down and read God's word, we're going to twist it to mean whatever we want. We will. We're going to twist it to suit our own agendas. We're going to read into it so many things that would take our eyes off the actual point of it that God is wanting us to get from these things. And Peter is cautioning us against that. If uh, doing that, if you look at verse uh, chapter 3, verse 16, Peter uses a couple words that none of us would like to fall into the category of. But if we read into and twist Scripture to mean whatever we want, Peter says that firmly puts us in the category of being ignorant and unstable. Here's the best part about all of this, or one of the best parts about all of this. You don't need to twist Scripture to be happy. That's such a simple statement, but let me just say it again. We don't have to twist scripture to be happy in this life. There are people in churches that think or at least practice as if you do. Because they're not happy, they're not content with what it says, and so well, surely it can't mean that. So we have to figure out a different interpretation, a different meaning. And we become ignorant and unstable. Our flesh would say, man, you know what? Explain it differently. Immorality? Well, maybe it's not quite that bad. We explain it differently so that we can justify our sin. 
And it happens. We've done it before. We see it happening in our world today. Peter says, no, don't do this. You become ignorant and unstable when you do that. But real joy, real peace, real freedom, they don't come trying to make God say whatever we want him to say. Those things really come from hearing and believing what God says plainly in his word and then letting that shape our lives. And so that's what we want to be about as Christians, as a church body, is not to say, well, here's the Bible, we're going to use it as kind of the the blueprint, or at least, you know, where we can kind of go off of that. No, everything we do comes from God's word because it's from God. That's how we understand how to love one another, how to preach the gospel to a world that needs him, how to be saved. If we make it mean whatever we want, it's not God's words anymore. It's ours. They, these guys wrote as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Christian, Do you need encouragement that the day of Christ, the day, the second coming, when Christ comes in all his majesty and glory and splendor, do you need need encouragement that that's really going to happen? Do you need encouragement that a life of self-control, patience, uh, brotherly affection, love, those things that we've been through in the last couple weeks, do you need encouragement that that's actually possible? That that kind of life will lead you to glory? Well, if you need encouragement in those things, here it is. Go to the scriptures. Open the word. Let God show you how to do those things. Let his word and the spirit of God through Christ and salvation in you bring those about in your life. And and when you go to the scriptures, Peter wants you to remember this thing. These are your last blank on the notes this morning. These are not the mere words of men. These are the words of God. This is not Peter saying, this is my opinion. It's not James and John and all the other authors of the Bible saying, this is what we think God says. These guys were carried along like a sailboat in the wind. They don't tell the wind where to blow. They just go with it in that direction. And they wrote down what God, through the Spirit, told them to. So when we sit down and read the Word, which gives us encouragement and life and joy and peace and contentment, remember to seek God's meaning in these things. Remember that when we do that, that's where we find the lamp of hope that's shining in the darkness. Let me leave you with words from Paul in Romans chapter 15, verse 4. He says this, He says, for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. I hope that you have hope today, not in just feeling good about what the Bible might say, but in true salvation that only comes through relationship with Jesus. Would you pray with me this morning? God, these... These are your words. Second Timothy 3 tells us the same thing. They are breathed out, inspired by you. Not, not these men. They didn't originate these thoughts and ideas. These are your words that carried them along by the Spirit, and they simply just wrote them down. So, Lord, we want to we read and study and apply the Bible the same kind of way. Your way. And so when we go to it, and I pray that you would give us a hunger more than we have now, 
And when we go to it, Lord, that we would say, God, what is it that you want to say? And we don't go into it with our own presuppositions, our own baggage playing into it. Your word addresses those things, our baggage and needs, but we don't go into it reading with that in mind. Lord, give us the grace and the ability to say, God, we're a blank slate. We want your word to speak truth into our hearts and lives. Because not only do we need it, Lord, but our neighbors need it. Our children need it. Our grandchildren need it. They need the truth. And you've given us your truth. Your word is truth. So, Lord, I pray that we would take encouragement from the scriptures, that we might have hope in them and in Jesus that they tell us about. Hebrews 1 tells us that Jesus is the exact imprint of your nature. And everything that we need to know about you, we see in him through your word. We're thankful that you've given it to us. Lord, I pray that if you are calling some to submit to your word, to submit to your rule in their life, Lord, I pray that you'd give them grace and grant them repentance and help them turn to you by faith today. Even as we sing our final song and go home, Lord, that your spirit might work in us and be in us and work through us, Lord. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.